Good morning, it's good to be with you this morning, and I would ask if you would turn in the Bible to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. We are continuing this morning in our series in loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And this morning's topic is loving God with all our soul. Mark chapter 8, we will be reading verses 34 to 38. And then we will jump to Mark chapter 12 after that. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Mark chapter 12 verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love us, sinners condemned unclean. And we've sung how marvelous is your love, how wonderful it is, Lord, that you would Pour out your love upon us in showering us with your grace, inviting us into relationship with yourself, forgiving us our sins, making us possible to be in your presence, Lord. We thank you and praise you that it is by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is your gift which you've given to us. We thank you, God, for your word. We pray that as we read it this morning, your spirit might speak to us in our minds and in our hearts, that we might be uh, so uh, enlighten lord as to what it means to love you with our soul that it would affect the way we think and feel and act and behave lord we we can't get there all at once lord but we pray that today we might make some progress that your spirit might open our eyes just enough that we might catch a glimpse of what you're teaching us and that it might encourage us and that it might strengthen us and help us to love you better and to love our neighbor as ourselves we pray this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What is your immortal soul? That phrase, immortal soul, is one that's used in religious circles sometimes. What is your immortal soul? Is your soul actually immortal? What did Jesus mean when he said we should love the Lord our God with all our soul? Now, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. The Bible has a lot of words that are translated into English, 
And sometimes the words are used interchangeably. Uh, An example of this would be the words spirit and soul. The words spirit and soul are sometimes used interchangeably. And what I mean by that is that it's hard to know exactly what the distinction is sometimes based on the usage of the word. But here, in this context, Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 12 that we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. And what is he saying there? What does that mean? What, why the distinction? Why not just say love God with everything? Why does God say to Moses, this is how you love me. This is how you should love me. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The word here, soul, that's translated as soul, is the word in the Greek that we actually get our word psyche from. Or words like psychology or psychiatrist. It's an interesting word. The word literally means breath or the vital breath. And of course, it harkens back to that account in the book of Genesis when God first created man in the Garden of Eden. It said of Adam that he breathed into Adam and Adam became a living being. And so right away, the word soul has more to it than just some kind of ghostly existence. That it's not some kind of disembodied existence, but rather the soul was linked to the body in the very beginning of our existence as human beings and as a species on planet Earth. That God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul, a living being. That word has become synonymous with this idea of the human person, the individual. The soul was seen as a seat of affection and will and identity and self. The word as a verb means to breathe or to blow, from which we get our word psychology. And it came to mean something of a person's distinct identity, their unique personhood, their individual personality. It's interesting that when you look at the way the word is used in the New Testament and the way the translators translate the word, it's striking because of what we associate with the word soul. Like if I were to ask you what you think of when you think of your soul, immediately you would, I am sure, think of something that is non-material. You would think of it as non-material. You would think of it as some kind of ghostly thing that there's some kind of ghost in us or some kind of spiritual aspect to us that's disembodied almost or distinct from this. And yet what is striking, what is striking about this is how closely intimate it is with our bodies in the Bible. As we see, for example, in Adam's creation. Adam's an inanimate body until he's breathed into it. The body lives because of the soul. It's a striking thought. The verses we read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, illustrate this for us and bring it into a different kind of understanding. We read that Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Now, when we hear Jesus say that, right, we immediately think about what goes into our life. What is our life about? What is the encompassing of our life and what does our life involve? 
And so if we save our life, we lose it. If we lose it for him and the sake of the gospel, we save it. And we have in our mind some idea what the life is. And then Jesus says, for what does a prophet man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Now, the English translators of the Bible create an interesting distinction. Because, red alert, it's the same word, life and soul in the Greek. It could just as easily be translated for whoever wishes to save his soul will lose it. And whoever loses his soul for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what will a man give in exchange for his life? You see, what we think of as the soul is pretty much been dictated to us by Greek philosophy. And in the West, concepts of the soul became embedded with Greek philosophy, which created this dichotomy between the body and the soul as two distinct things. But in the Hebrew worldview, your soul and your life were indistinguishable. They were not distinct things. And so your soul was why you lived. And your life was built on your soul. And they were not separable. And so when Jesus is talking to us about loving God, loving God with all our soul, he's not creating a category that is like soulish in the sense of like ghostly or spiritual or non-material or, or somehow non-physical. What he's trying to say here for us is what he's saying to us is that we shall love the Lord our God with our lives. Think about this. How would it impact you if you read it this way? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your breath. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your breath. You see, if I'm breathing, I'm alive, right? If I fast, I can fast for days. Now, I don't fast for days. If I ever fast, I try to fast periodically for spiritual reasons. Sometimes I'll fast for two meals, which is sort of like 24 hours from dinner to dinner. And I'll try to use that time to pray. However, I've been told that I could go without food for quite a long time. In fact, we know from the Bible that Jesus fasted for 40 days. Gandhi fasted often as a way to persuade and coerce people to embrace his worldview and to fight against violence and terrorism and government oppression. And he would go for weeks without food. You can go literally weeks without eating. Some of us could probably go longer than others. <laughs> Water. I've been told that if you don't have water, you'll die in three or four days. I've never come close to that. But I have been told that water is an essential element of life. But if I don't have a drink, if I take in no fluids, 
If I stop drinking on Monday, you're burying me by Friday. But breath, that's a whole nother thing. You stop breathing and you're brain dead in less than 10 minutes. You see, breath is life. Breath is life. And what Jesus is saying is that I am to love him with my breath. He's saying I'm to love him with my life. Well, what is my life? What is my life? I mean, if you think about it, what is it? about my life well it's almost like god is saying look you know wherever you're breathing and whenever you're breathing that's when you're supposed to be loving me last week we talked about the heart and we examined some elements of what is the concept behind the heart and we saw for the use of an acronym that the heart is our center it's what is our identity it's the place that we go to to in a sense find out who we are and what we're about and if we're loving God with our heart we're loving him with that most important and intimate part of ourselves it also speaks of our orientation in other words where are we going what are we aligning our life to our heart speaks of those desires and affections that we have and how we make decisions based on those things and so our orientation is God my north star is he the compass of my life if I'm loving God with all my heart it inevitably will be an evaluation of what is important to me in the moment and of course we also know the heart speaks of relationships and how we are often associating heart with the idea of who we love and the relationships we have and so if I'm to be loving God with all of my heart it must mean that in the arena of my relationships God is first and my love for him is expressed in my love for others in those relationships but that I love him first and because he loves me, I'm able to love others. And then, of course, the last part, the E, was our emotions. And, of course, we often think of our heart as the seat of our emotions, and that is true. But where are our emotions, and where do our emotions take us? And are, are we willing to subject our emotions to the word and will of God? This is a, one of the biggest problems we have in our society today, and that is that we are our feelings, we're not people who have feelings. We just are our feelings. And so often our feelings dictate to us our behavior without any reserve or self-control. And so as a result of that, we are governed by our feelings. And as, as my brother-in-law has said, uh, feelings make great servants, but they're terrible masters. And so if we are to love God with our heart, we're loving God with what is in our center, we're loving God with what is in our core. But now think about this. If the heart is the center, then what is my soul? If the soul is my breath. If the soul is my life. Well, if the heart in loving God is the center, then my soul must be its circumference. What do I mean by that? In other words, when you think about your life, you think about your life as a, a, a series of concentric circles. And the more intimate and the more 
tight the circle is, speaks of the relationships we have. We go, for example, for this self. The identity of myself is the most innermost circle. The relationship I have with myself. The Bible tells us that sin fragments that relationship. I am not true to myself. I have things I want to do that I do not do. There are things I don't want to do. Those are the things I end up doing. This is because of sin. It fractures me. It breaks me. And then I continue to move out. And then there's my relationships with my parents, with my siblings, with my peers, with my friends, with my community. And I keep going in outer and outer circles. And no matter where I go, at the very edge of that circle of relationship and existence, you might say the sum total of all of that is my life. Well, if I'm loving God with all of my soul, Jesus is that circumference. In other words, there's nothing outside of him. See, for most of us, our relationship with Christ is intensely personal. And so therefore, we have him inside that inner box. But for many of us, he never gets beyond that. And so we have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We trust him as our Savior. But then we move out into the sphere of our friends or our family or our community, and we've kept him, as it were, inside that. So he's not the circumference. There are things outside of him in our mind. There are relationships. There are experiences there are things that I do with my time. There are things that I do with my talents. There are things that I do with my treasure that, are, that he's not a part of. And you see, if that's the case, I'm not loving him with all my soul. And so when Jesus is saying to us, what is it that we're doing here? We should love him with all of our soul. He's saying to us that we're to love God with our lives. That if the heart is the center, the soul is the circumference, and there's nothing beyond him. One author observed it this way. He writes, it seems Moses starts with a call to love God from within and then moves one step larger, saying that everything about us as a person is to declare Yahweh as Lord. Think about your life. At this moment, what is your life? Sounds like a TV show, right? What is your life? This is your life. But what is your life? So if I look at my life and I think about who I am, there are all kinds of identities that I have to wear. I walk into my school and I am a teacher. Students are always surprised when they see me like at the movie theater. Mr. Barrett? It's like, you're here? Yes, believe it or not, I don't sleep in the closet at school. Really, it's a universal phenomenon. They just cannot imagine me in any other place. So when they see me, it's like, oh my gosh, he has a life. I do, it's amazing. But that's an identity I have. I walk into the classroom, and I'm a teacher. I come home from work, and I have a role as a husband. When my children lived at home, I was a father. I'm a neighbor. I'm a friend. I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm a preacher. I have all these identities. 
is Jesus Lord in the mall? Is Jesus Lord in the mall? And you see, a lot of times we look at things like lists in the Bible and we break them down into their categories and we try to analyze the different areas and we talk about heart and soul. And like I said last week, what we have to understand is that we're not trying to reinforce the idea that there are boxes. Jesus' intent in this quote, in quoting this Hebrew scripture, is to blow the boxes up. God doesn't want to be in a box. He's not going to be contained in a box. And, and if we're to love him with all of our soul, we have to recognize that there are no boxes. Because wherever I'm breathing, that's when I'm supposed to be loving him. Another author, Justin Huffman, writes, interestingly, interestingly, the word aspiration also contains the idea of breath and speaks of how intimately entwined our goals and ambitions are with our very life. What we desire to be is, in a sense, exactly what we are already. It is what we are striving for, but it is also what our life is already about. What is your greatest ambition? What do you lay awake at night dreaming about? We love, quote-unquote, to look at what we love. What do we gaze on longingly in the treasure chest of our imagination? What do you desire above everything else? You see, to love God is to love him with our passions, our hungers, our perceptions, our thoughts. But it's also to love him with how we talk, what we do with our hands, how we utilize our talents, how we react to our challenges. Our entire being is to display that we love God. Soul is my life. Not just the immaterial part of me that exists after I die. But it is the life that I live now, one, one day at a time. It's interesting, you know, SOS, uh, the, the old understanding of that, many people think SOS stood for something. It doesn't actually stand for this, but it was a misconception, like an urban legend. Does anybody know what SOS people thought it stood for? Anybody? Save our soul, or save our souls. That's not why it was created. It has to actually do with the use of Morse code, and, and, and that is why they chose it. But, but it's interesting how we attributed significance to SOS as save our souls. Well, when I'm drowning, right, and the ship's going down, I'm not thinking necessarily about going to heaven. That's actually the opposite, right? You want someone to come and save your life. And you see, that's essentially what the Bible is telling us if we're to do with the life God gives us. When, when, when someone dies, right, all those identities cease in this moment. Now, we remember them as father, husband, mother, sister, brother. We remember them that way. But their function in those identities ceases the moment they die. They can no longer parent. They can no longer be a neighbor. They can no longer 
be a teacher, a friend, a guide. That role has ceased. And you see, what the Bible is telling us is that we as human beings have a life that is precious and meaningful and significant. And we're to not treat it as something casual or to be dispensed with in a cavalier way, but rather our life is important and we express that importance to God by dedicating it to Him. By understanding and listening to the truth that this life is not my own, but has rather been given to me on loan by God through which I am to love Him in it. All aspects of it. Brother Lawrence writes this, Renounce everything that does not lead to God. Become accustomed to a continual conversation with Him in freedom and simplicity. Speak to Him every moment. Ask Him to tell you what to do when you're not sure. Get busy with it when you plainly see what He requires of you. Offer your activity to Him even before you do it. Give God thanks when you accomplish something. The depth of your spirituality does not depend upon changing the things you do, but in doing for God what you would ordinarily do for yourself. The biggest mistake is to think that a time of prayer is different from any other time. Did you catch that? The biggest mistake we make, he writes, is to think that a time of prayer is different from any other time. It is all one. Prayer is the experience of God. There should be no change when a time of prayer ends. Continue with God. Praise Him and bless Him with all your energy. In other words, love God with all your soul. The Apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see what Paul is saying? I have a life. I have a life now I live in the flesh. But the life that I now live in the flesh is not my life. The life I now live in the flesh, the life that I now live in the here and the now, in the moment, the days, the weeks, the hours, the minutes, this life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way I can live this life is by faith in Him. And who is it that I have my faith in? But the one who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so we go right back to what we started about last week talking about. That this is not you trying to like put it all together and screw up the courage and the self-effort to make yourself more spiritual or more holy. It's going back to the gospel truth that there is a life that you receive by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you love because he first loved you. If you don't start with his love, if you don't stand amazed in the presence of the Nazarene and wonder how he could love you, a sinner condemned unclean, you're starting off in the wrong place. 
We have to start at the place where we recognize that, yes, I am a sinner condemned unclean. There's nothing about me that I can offer God that would make any sense to, in this universe as a way to buy his favor. But rather, I come as a supplicant, as a beggar, asking for forgiveness, knowing that in myself I have nothing to give. But rather because of the grace of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you and for me and rose from the dead physically from the grave, the life that he lives now, he's able to give to those who put their trust in him. Amen? Amen. And the Bible says we become new creations in Christ. So this is not a, a, like adding another list to the laundry of the to-do list of things you need to do. But rather, it's an awakening that there is nothing in your life that does not matter. There's nothing in your life that God does not care about. There's nothing in your life that you cannot sacramentally give over to him. And if there is something in your life that you know there's no way this meshes with God and his will, guess what? Get rid of it. And so you see, the, the, the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Listen to some of these verses. This is just the consistent message of the Bible. This is just the consistent message of the Scriptures. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. How many people like that as like, like, like one of their favorite verses? I guess it could be that, right? You'll know it right away. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. What does it say next? In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he'll make your path straight. In all your ways. It can't get any simpler than that, right? It cannot get any simpler. In all your ways. Wherever you are, wherever you're going, wherever your path takes you, one day at a time, and see, this is where our culture really does us a disservice because we are, it's like in church and separation of church and state, separation of church. But now what's become is like, that becomes the privatization of religion. In other words, it's like it's your little box and you have this little cubicle in it and, and we were going to take it out of the marketplace. We're going to take it out of the public square. We're going to take it out of this and out of that. And we're going to confine you to your church. We're going to confine you to your home. And that's all where you can think about God. And we buy into it because it feeds our flesh. We can be really spiritual on Sunday. We can go to church, do our duty, and then we can just live however we want the rest of the week. And we go out and we come back on Sunday, we kind of do it all over again. And this is not the way God wants it. He's the Lord of creation. That means everything that is. He's Lord over all. So from Sunday morning to Saturday night, 24-7, 365, He's Lord. And so in my life, to love God with all my soul is not some kind of like spiritual experience and emotional, like, oh, you know, the hymn, the song, the chorus, it just moved me today. I must be loving God with all my soul. No, you're loving God when your hands are in the, in the dirty dishes or changing the diaper. That's when you're loving God with your soul. You're not loving God with your soul only when you're here on a Sunday morning really enjoying the word being preached. You are loving God with your soul because you're alive right now, breathing. But you're also loving God with your soul when you're at work trying to figure out how to solve this problem that's being confronted to you and you cannot figure it out. And what do you do? You ask God. And my wife is a testimony. She gets embarrassed when I talk about it, but she's a testimony of this. 
over the years, she has faithfully reminded me, have you thanked him, Ken? Something going wrong in my life. Something I can't find my keys. Something stupid, like I can't find my keys. Have you thanked him? I'm not, I don't want to thank God for losing my keys, Lord. I don't want to thank you for this. Have you asked him? Oh, I haven't asked him yet. I don't want to ask him. I feel like an idiot. But over and over, you want to make Christians uncomfortable when you're in the middle of a conversation about something very significant? Stop them and say, let's pray about this right now. <laughs> it's like the train comes off the rails. Like, what? We're just talking. Yes, let's talk to God about it. You see, we, we compartmentalize. We create boxes. This isn't the prayer meeting. No, but we can pray. This isn't the Bible study. We could talk about the scriptures. In other words, we want to recognize what God is telling us here in all your ways. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, wait. That seems really absolute. Remember I tell you how our life is important? How our life is meaningful and significant? Jesus says, if you live this life Apart from me, it's a zero. It's not that you can't do anything. You can do lots of things. But it will be nothing in the end. But if you abide in me, he says, and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And you see the implication there is, is that, that this life, all these relationships I have, they can be nothing or they can be something. And the something isn't just when I'm on my knees praying or I'm handing out literature or I'm preaching or I'm teaching Sunday school or doing that. The something can be in every aspect of my life because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians, whatever you then do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. He says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. I mean, I'm, sometimes I think I'm brain dead. Like, he says, whatever you do, teach a class, drive to work, do the laundry. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Cleaning the toilet. It's right. Whatever you do. The mistake we make is that we want to imagine that there are spiritual things in our life and there are not spiritual things. And God says that's not the way it is. It's wherever you're breathing. But I have a, I have a, I have a suspicion about this. I want to let you know a little secret. 
I think I know why I, I, I think that way. I think I think that way because I want to keep control. I think I think that way because if God's over here and I have all this other stuff over here, I'm in my charge over here. And I get satisfaction from doing it and I feel important and I can stroke myself and, and then when I fail, it's all my fault and I can beat myself up for it and real feel real humble about it. And then when I hear messages like this, I go, okay, well, maybe I'll make God's box a little bigger. I'll include more. I'll go to church four times a week. But what am I really doing? I'm just trying to keep a little bit of territory for myself where I'm king. And Jesus is saying, no. That's not how you love me with all your soul. Whatever you do, whatever you do, he says to the Colossians, do it with all your heart, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward, the, the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ that you serve. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to God the Father. In the Thessalonians, it's written, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You know, we hear that phrase, pray without ceasing, it intimidates us because we think to ourselves, how is that even possible? Because in our mind, we think of prayer in one way. We have this category of prayer. It starts out with our Father, and it ends with Amen. And we think of prayer that way, and we start to think that, well, how can we, how can we do that constantly except if we understand that we're to love God with all our soul, means we love God with all our breath, that means that we're, our life itself can be a constant state of prayer as we're living before him. Acknowledging him in all our ways, inviting him into every circumstance, recognizing that he's the silent listener to every conversation, that he's the witness to all the things that I do, that he is there. And listen, I get it. It's not going to... It doesn't happen automatically. We're not, our brains are not wired this way. We've got to retrain ourselves to think differently. We need to exercise ourselves, Paul says, to godliness. There are going to be times when acknowledging him is going to feel very awkward. And, and I've been aware of this for years and years, and I still I, I fall into bad patterns and bad habits. And it's easy to forget and go back to doing things the same old way because the flesh is always a gravity pulling us away from God, pulling us down. But the reality is that if I want to love him with all my soul, I need to remind that he first loved me and that that love was shown to me at the cross. And it reminds me that he is entitled to everything that exists about me and that there is no place in my life where he cannot go and I should try to keep him out. And therefore, before him, I can rejoice always, I can pray without ceasing, and in everything I can give thanks. You know, um, my, my daughter's a nurse, and we're so happy to have her with us this weekend. And when she started to go to nursery school, we started watching Grey's Anatomy. Now, I'm not recommending Grey's Anatomy, but there are probably some people here who watch Grey's Anatomy. We've watched all 16 seasons. I was so excited because I thought to myself, we're reaching finally the end of this show, and my daughter says, Dad, They've renewed it for one more season. I'm like, no. 
I've watched so many heart transplants on Grey's Anatomy. But I've learned some really important medical knowledge. If you're having a heart transplant, it means that if you don't, you're dead. Like, they don't transplant your heart just for the fun of it. It's not what they call, like, cosmetic surgery. If you're having a heart transplant, it means that you're dead without one. And you see, that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about a heart transplant. God says, I will give you a new heart. God says the old heart you have is broken and dead and stony and hard. I will give you a new heart. And out of that heart, there's a life. Because guess what happens when you get a heart transplant? You get a new life. People who are on machines in that show, they go out and live their life again. And the irony is, is that the heart that's beating in their body is somebody else's heart. The life that they're living now is because someone else's heart is beating inside them. And I think to myself, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The heart of God beats inside me. And that's the life that I have. Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. I died there. All that sinful self, it was nailed to the cross with him. But I still live. But the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His life for yours. His life for your life. What will you do with this new life? With this new heart? Justin Hoffman writes, the Puritan preacher Thomas Doolittle wrote, this world doth often change its inhabitants. What does that mean? Your house will eventually be someone else's house. Your job, someone else's job. Your locker at school is going to be someone else's locker at school. There's only one goal that is always worth striving for every day of your life. There's only one place that is rich and secure enough to plant your hope there. There's only one person that is worthy of all your attention, devotion, and worship. That goal, that place, that person is the very one who speaks to the scribe, the rule collector in all of us. He is Jesus Christ. Love him with all your soul. Give him your all of everything. Gaze at him until you love to look at him. Let us pray.